All right, today we're going to be back in Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to open your Bible up that way. Before we do that, let's start looking at it. Let's, uh, let's pray together here. Lord, I thank you for the morning that you've given to us today. I, I thank you for calling us together into the church to be gathered around your word. I pray, Lord, as we, as we learn from the things that you've taught us, in the Bible, and we discuss them and, and consider them, Lord, I pray that we really would grow in our commitment to you, that our devotion to you and to your church would, would, would be increased, Lord. I thank you for um, allowing us to gather here together again, giving us a place. I say it often, but Lord, I'm so thankful for the desire that you put into your people to be together, to have fellowship around your word, to worship together. pray that you teach us by your word and by your spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Last week we moved from a large doctrinal section. The book of Hebrews has a a central section um, from chapters 4 through midway through chapter 10. It's really a doctrinal section. Um, And last week we sort of started moving away from that. If you look back here um, at Hebrews 10.19, you see how the, the writer of Hebrews summarizes these doctrinal truths that he's been talking about in the earlier verses and chapters. Hebrews 10.19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Here's these two statements. Since these things are true, since this doctrine's true, he's going to continue from there to tell us then how we should live, what should we do with it. This is is for now, these two verses are a simple summary that that, that for we who believe in Jesus, that, that, that he was really our perfect sacrifice and is our perfect priest. Well, you see it in these two verses. He's, he's accomplished in his once-for-all-time sacrifice what no other priest and no other sacrifice ever could. He has opened a new and living way to God into his presence in heaven. Uh, it's new because of the better, more perfect sacrifice. Christ's perfect blood that he shed on the, cl- the cross actually atoned for our sins. It actually paid the debt that we owe, satisfied God's wrath against us because he died in our place. That's a perfect sacrifice. That's a new way to heaven. A new way to God is through the sacrifice of Christ. It's not only new, it's living. It's a living way because in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has credited to us his righteous life. He has taken our sins away from us and replaced them with the righteousness that is required for us to enter into God's presence. We are now qualified to approach God in heaven, where Jesus sits at the right hand, where he's gone ahead of us as our forerunner, making himself the steadfast anchor for our souls behind the curtain that separated us from God because of our sin. These are unique blessings for the saved, for the Christians. They're, 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 They're ours. They belong to all the saints, but only to the saints, only to the Christians. None others have taken Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, taken his sacrifice and made him into their priest. None other than the Christian has done this. Now, as we said last week, the writer of Hebrews here summarizes these doctrines for the purpose of provoking a response in us. In light of these amazing truths, 
that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, is the perfect priest, how then should we live now? What must we do as Christians in light of those truths? I mean, just as these blessings of the gospel are unique to Christians, so too we have unique obligations to the Lord. We talked about them last week as they're seen in verses 22 through 25. You scan over these verses, you'll see almost every verse there is begun with a, a statement of exhortation where he says, let us, right? Let us do these things. Let us, in verse 22, draw near. Let us draw near to God in faith in Christ Jesus. And then again in, in, in uh, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 24, let us consider how we ought to love. Consider us, uh, how we can encourage one another. Let us love as Christ Jesus loved us. We discussed these last week, that these are the three great pillars on which the Christian life is built. Faith, hope, and love. I mean, Christians, Christians have to draw near to God in faith. We, we must hold unwaveringly to our hope and share it with the lost. And, and we, 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 we are required to love one another, encouraging each other to love and good works. I only touched on the church last week. We're returning to these last couple verses today to discuss the church more fully. We said last week that a Christian must be part of a local church as one of these three essential duties of the Christian life. We base that on verse 25. It begins in verse 24, the statement, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The command that we should not neglect the meeting together is in this section given the same importance in the Christian life as drawing near to God in true spiritual worship. It's given the, the same prominence as holding fast, holding tightly, unwaveringly to our confession. Now, it's one of the three, and that's true, but it's not only one of the three. Meeting together is not only one of three duties. It's the one that is maybe God's most helpful means to strengthen and fortify the other two. The other two legs of this table are strengthened by not neglecting to meet together with the church. A church operating in the Spirit, according to the Scriptures, is primarily a gathering to worship God and build up the believers in the faith. Teaching, training, encouraging, employing Christians to live in obedience to and love for Christ Jesus. That's supposed to be the purpose and mission of the church. We can and must draw near to God on our own. With our individual devotion, reading the Bible on our own, praying alone, increasing our devotion in our hearts and minds as we grow in the faith. And, and we're personally responsible to hold tightly to our hope in Christ without wavering. But the Lord has not left us to do such things on our own. He has given us the church where we're to encourage one another. And all the more as you say, see the day drawing near, the verse says. So let me ask you this. Do you see the day drawing near? Are we closer to the day of Christ's return today than we were yesterday or last month or a year ago? I mean, is the great and mighty day of the judgment closer now than it was a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago? Of course it is. And many are convinced that it's approaching ever more quickly now. 
I mean, just one thought, have you seen the love of many grow increasingly cold in the past few years? Is that something that we've witnessed and experienced? I'm not trying to make any specific predictions. I'm just taking note that if we see the day drawing near, which I saw a lot of heads bobbing in the affirmative direction, right? Yes. Then what should our attitude be towards meeting together as the church? If we see the day drawing near, according to Hebrews 10.25, it says we should not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That phrase in the verse, all the more, does that apply to encouraging one another or not neglecting the meeting? Which does it apply to? Does it mean that we should all the more encourage one another as we see the day coming near? Or all the more make sure that we don't neglect the meeting together as we see the day drawing near? Is it one or the other? Can you have one without the other? This is an either or. This is a both and situation, right? When you neglect the meeting of the church, it's impossible for you to encourage those at the meeting, isn't it? You, you can't obey the one without obeying the other. You can't have one without the other. There's more to do than just attend the meetings, but attending the meeting is the baseline requirement in order to be able to fulfill all the rest. In fact, the regular neglect of the meetings is one of the most discouraging things possible to those who are still gathering in the meetings. I mean, it has the, the complete opposite effect of what is commanded here. Neglecting the meeting causes discouragement for those who are looking for you at the meeting. Right? I mean, this may seem very basic, and it, it is. <laughs> I mean, it, it, this, is, this is the baseline situation. Is that where I want to be, causing the opposite effect of encouraging? I noted this last week, that some look at these verses and try to interpret the meaning without reference to a particular local church body. For any number of reasons, various people don't think that the individual local church is a vital part of the Christian life. It's, for them, an optional add-on at best. Right? They, they think that as long as a person is saved converted, that they, that they love the Lord, that, that they're part of the universal church and involvement in a local church is irrelevant. They look at these verses and say that the obligations that I have are to the Lord and not to other people. Not, at least not a particular consistent group of other people. The, the verse they sweep aside relatively lightly by saying that what this means is that whenever I have the opportunity to meet with Christians as I float along in my life, I shouldn't neglect to meet with them. I should, when given the opportunity, as I'm passing along in life, I should attempt at times to encourage other believers wherever I might find them. But this by no means obligates me to prioritize a regular meeting at a single specific church for the purpose of continually encouraging specific believers. That's what they would say. Maybe not quite that way, but that's what they would mean. <laughs> okay? That's the effect of this thought. Now, does that seem to fit the verses? I mean, perhaps I could make them fit if I isolate the text and see the, this twisted view and then read it into the verses. But in, if I consider the context of the entirety of the New Testament teaching about the church, it's impossible to see the Lone Ranger Christian who has no consistent place in a specific local church assembly. In order for us to understand them more fully, we're going to camp here on these verses today. We're going to have a little topical study about the church. I could do this for weeks, but I'm going to try to limit it today 
to talking about a few different aspects of the church so we can understand it better. My goal is to exhort us, as the text does here in Hebrews 10.25, to not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. And here's the outline. Tell you my outline. I don't always do this, but the first thing that we're going to do is talk about. I mentioned the concept of the universal church. I want to talk about that, see it in the Bible, and understand how it differs from the visible local church of which we should be a part according to the New Testament. And the second thing that we're going to talk about is is the distinguishing features of a biblical church. What what makes a church a church? What 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 is different about a church than any other organization? according to the scripture. And finally, we'll consider how those marks of an authentic church translate to the blessings that believers experience when they do not neglect the meeting of the church. Make sense? That's where we're heading. So these are the the three sort of things we're going to talk about. The first that I want to make a distinction about is the universal church and the local churches. By universal church, we generally mean that single spiritual body of all the redeemed in all places and from all times. It's the invisible church, where, where, where the, that, that church is being built soul by soul as each believer is united to Christ Jesus by faith. The total number of all the saints from every tribe, language, people, and nation who will one day be gathered together for all eternity with Christ. The, the church, the universal body. This is the primary meaning that Jesus himself had when he first used the word church. You go look it up, the first time the word church appears in the New Testament is in Matthew 16, 18, and it's when Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Despite Roman Catholic dogma, which claims that their church is the one that started with Peter, there is no such thing. There is no such church in existence today that was founded by Peter specifically. This statement then about what what Jesus is telling Peter is about the invisible universal church which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus uses a synonym more often than the word church. In the Gospels, especially like the book of of Matthew and Luke, he, he talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those are synonymous with the idea of a universal church. It's all the believers, right? Hell itself, Jesus told Peter, cannot prevail against the expansion of the kingdom of God, the church, which is always growing as more are saved through faith in Christ. No individual church can claim claim Peter as their foundation and see that they haven't had, you know, been prevailed upon over time. By the gates of hell, but it's the universal church that this is true. This universal, invisible church is seen in other verses throughout the New Testament. We read that Paul wrote about this in Colossians 1.18. He, meaning Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the top. He's preeminent. He's, he's the best. We've talked about this verse in different contexts, even in the book of Hebrews. But as it relates to the church, Jesus is the head. Now, it's sure that he should be the head of individual local churches as well, but he's the head of that single body, the universal church. Paul's more specific, I think, in Ephesians 4.4, 4, when he says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, one body, the single body. 
We experience divisions within this body. There's different time periods. There's different denominations. There's different cultural aspects. But the, the, the one thing that unites all of the body of Christ into the universal church is the unity with him, one Lord, one faith in one Lord. This makes it the universal church. Like I said, Jesus talks about it often as the kingdom of God. There's other verses like these that are most appropriately understood to be talking about the invisible spiritual body that transcends time and location. But is that the primary use of the word church in the New Testament? It's a different question. It is that way sometimes, but the answer to the question is, is it the way that church is intended and used the majority of the time it's used in the New Testament, the answer to that is no. It's not primarily used in the New Testament to signify the invisible universal body of Christ. We can understand this first from the Greek word itself. What's the Greek word that is translated church most often in our English Bibles? It's the, it's the Greek word ekklesia, ecclesia, depending on how you want to pronounce it. The ekklesia. This is, this, some form of that word is the Greek word that's most often translated church. That word is a common word from Greek and Roman, the Greek and Roman world, and it originally had no religious significance whatsoever. Ecclesia. It was the word used to designate the regular assembly of the citizens in a free city state. It was, it was a gathering of the citizens who were called out of their private lives into the public forum to hear and debate the matters of the city. The ecclesia. That's literally what the word means, to call out, or those who have been called out. Now we can see how that applies broadly and universally to the entire body of Christ, made up of all the, all the believers from all times who've been called out of the world into the kingdom of God. We can understand how that applies that way, but the word itself is more appropriately and consistently applied to individual local visible assemblies based partly on the way that the word was used in the Greek culture. Ecclesia was used more like what we would call a town hall meeting. A town hall meeting, right? The literal physical meeting in the town hall where, where the city council and the community members gather to, to discuss the politics in, uh, of the city. I, I know today town hall can be a virtual meeting, but, but before virtual meetings, it meant the town hall, right? But even at that, even a virtual meeting is, is a specific meeting and, and, and designates a meeting with a limited scope and a limited attendance. It's, it's not everybody everywhere, a town hall meeting, even the virtual kind. The church is primarily such an, such an assembly in the New Testament as the word ecclesia is used. It's, it's not the building. It doesn't require a single specific location, but it does require a certain people, Christians, who are called out of the world to gather in their spiritual town halls, their ecclesias, their, their churches. It's sometimes called the visible church because the people gather physically. I mean, there's a definitive number who can be counted and it's a regular assembly, which means that the members need to be located near to one another. Therefore, we also call it a local assembly or a local church, local visible church. Every book of the New Testament after the first four Gospels is concerned with local churches. The Gospels are primarily concerned about the life and ministry of Christ. But after that, 
at, particularly after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, everything after that is, is church-centric. It's focused on the churches in all of the writings of the New Testament. Think about the book of Acts itself. It details the history of starting individual churches and the growth of those churches. As Paul traveled as a missionary to start churches and then went back to those churches to, to appoint elders and then went back to those churches to build them up and encourage them, where was he going? Not to just some universal something with everything. He's going to the church in Galatia. He's going to the church in Corinth. Such a, such a church is where the name Christian originated, according to Acts 11.26. It says, For a whole year they, meaning Barnabas and Paul, met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, where this church was located, the disciples were first called Christians. How were they known to be Christians? Because they gathered together and didn't neglect meeting. They were visible. They were local. They were together. They were seen by outsiders. All of these things go into that. It's local visible assemblies such as these churches that Paul wrote all his letters to. Think about it. He writes to the church of God in Corinth, to the churches, plural, in Galatia, plural, plural individual churches in Galatia, to the church of the Thessalonians, to the saints in Rome, the saints in Ephesus, the saints in Colossae. He even wrote to Philemon and the church that meets at his house. He wrote letters to the elders and pastors of those churches too, to Timothy, to Titus. It's not just him. James, John, Peter, and Jude all make references to the churches and their assemblies. Jesus himself even personally composed seven letters to seven specific churches in Asia Minor in, the, in chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. The, the whole thing is so church-centric, meaning individual local churches where the believers were assembled together, that it's, it's, it should be for us unmistakable. Unless you happen to exist in a purely individualistic society such as ours, where groups and churches and things like that are passe, old-fashioned, unnecessary, right? All kinds of things that, that can be concluded. Now, in that context, in the context of what I just said about the New Testament, Paul writes to them, he writes to their pastors, all the apostles who wrote scriptures wrote to and about the churches, all the way out to Jesus himself writing letters to those seven churches in Asia Minor. In that context, the book of Hebrews here gives us the most direct reference to such a local assembly in our verse today. See verse 25 again, Hebrews 10.25, Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. That meeting together is in a local visible assembly. And that, that is the most obvious defining mark of a church. Local, visible, meeting together, Christians meeting together. That's, that's the most obvious definition of a church. And, and here it also represents everything about being a devoted member of such a church, right? Prioritizing the meetings and going with a purpose to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That, that, that is what the devoted member of the church is supposed to sort of prioritize their life around so that they don't neglect the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You might remember this from when we were studying through the book of Acts. We talked about a verse that I think is the first best definition of what a church is in Acts chapter 2. Just after the day of Pentecost, towards the end of the chapter, um, we see what a church is and what are the distinguishing features of such a church. In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
This is a description of the first church in Jerusalem under the direct teaching and leadership of the apostles, literally just weeks after Jesus' crucifixion in the city where it happened. The people were devoted to it, meaning that they were not neglecting meeting together. Rather, they prioritized it, making sure that they were there among all the rest of those who had been called out of the world and into the ecclesia. There were two distinctives that they were devoted to according to Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Right? The apostles were teaching them all the things that Jesus had taught them about how he was the fulfillment of the promises of the scriptures. And the fellowship included eating together and praying together. It's not terribly complicated in that verse. They, they wanted to be together, not neglecting these graces given to them by the Lord. Now, can you possibly imagine that their devotion to the teaching and the fellowship had anything other than a positive effect on their faith. Can you, even, can you even imagine that? That they were harmed somehow, or it was a bad idea, or unnecessary, or anything like that? They're, they're growing to know and trust Christ more as they're learning more about Christ and what he did from the apostles, and taking those things and applying them with one another in how they fellowship and live in the context of that church. It surely more firmly established their hope that their profession of Christ was not an emotional whim, but a confidence that he who promised is indeed faithful. And that dedication had the effect on the love they had for one another. Because we read just a few verses later in Acts 2.45 what they did. They started selling all their possessions to provide for anybody who was in need. They were, they were, they were willing to sacrifice their own stuff for the love that they had for one another. In the context of the church, where they were meeting together, hearing the teaching, fellowshipping with one another, eating, breaking bread, and praying together. Now, perhaps those things could have been possible without devotion to the church, but it wouldn't have been such a dramatically new life for those early believers that everybody around them recognized their devotion to that church. Right? What's the devotion to church put into us? Well, as the church trains and teaches and encourages the apostles and the fellow believers put their spiritual development on kind of a fast-forward mode. You want to grow? You want to grow quickly? You want to mature? You want to maximize your maturity? Maturity. Here's the pattern. Follow this pattern. Be devoted to these things. Now, so far, I've only talked to just that one verse. Acts 2.42. Um, with these two distinguishing marks of, of the church, but... Uh, there's reason to consider a couple of more. That, that first church in Jerusalem had certain obvious characteristics that are kind of the most basic, rudimentary uh, definition of a church, but there are other specifics that grow out of that foundation where the apostles and the prophets were the beginning of the church. And there's different schemes to identify these. Some of you will remember, you know, Mark Devers wrote a book about the nine marks of a healthy church. Some, some say there's seven, others say there's 13. The, as many different people that you want to try to find, they probably got different numbers in their schemes. Most of the reformers during the Reformation recognized three marks of a church. The preaching of the word by qualified elders, the observance of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the exercise of biblical church, do, church discipline. Those are the three that the reformers generally kept and identified. Now, I'm going to work with their list, but add a fourth. I think they're missing something, which concerns the spiritual fellowship of the believers in the church. 
And we're going to add that as we go through. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about each of these four separately as we, as we look for a second um, and, and try, to, try to lay out these four marks or four distinctives of what a church is. The first one is the preaching of the word by qualified elders. The first church in Jerusalem had the apostles, right? They were teaching. They had the apostles and they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. But those apostles are long dead in our day. So what do we do? Do we look for new apostles, new prophets, to tell us more new things about God? Or do we do something else? No, of course we don't do that. We're, we're still devoted to the apostles' teaching today, albeit indirectly. It's through the teaching of the scriptures. It's through what they taught, what they gave us, and what they left, right? This is the teaching of the apostles. And we devote ourselves to this. That, that we dedicate ourselves to understanding what they've taught us. You remember what Jesus himself did after his resurrection? Let me try to show you this about the scriptures. After resurrection, in Luke 24, Jesus said to, uh, to, to those who had gathered after he spent time walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of the disciples, and they ran back to Jerusalem, and he starts teaching them. He starts teaching them that day. Luke 24, 44 says, He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. What did Jesus teach them? From where did he teach them? He taught them what is written. Written. He says it twice. Everything written about me. Thus it is written. And he taught them from the scriptures. He's explaining to them the meaning of the written text. As he, as they relate to him being the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, all of it gets fulfilled in Christ. He's using that to teach them. Paul does the same thing in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, 2 through 4, says that Paul, or 2, 2 and 3, it says that Paul went in to uh, Thessalonica. He went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Notice it says that this was Paul's regular habit. It didn't just happen there in Thessalonica. It happened everywhere. Paul's regular habit was to go and to preach Christ to them from the Scriptures. Again, Paul is explaining and proving from the text that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Jesus and Paul are both doing it from the Old Testament Scriptures. We have something more than that. Something in addition to the Old Testament scriptures. Oh, we can teach that and preach that. We could, we could figure out where it is, those promises of the, of the prophecies that, that promise that one day the Savior would come and, and point all of those things to Christ. But we have a revelation more full that's based on the apostles. The same things that the apostles were teaching in, in, in Jerusalem in Acts 2.42. The same thing Paul taught when he went from church to church to church. The same thing that he wrote to the churches in Rome, Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Colossae, all those churches in Galatia. We have all of that. It's in the Scripture. So this same thing is supposed to be happening in our churches. Hearing the apostles' teaching as the preacher explains the meaning and the application of the written text. 
And we call this expository preaching because we're exposing the meaning of the text, we're, we're explaining it, we're teaching it that way. Now, that doesn't have to be sequentially verse by verse, like, like I often teach. It doesn't have to be that. But it does have to be faithful teaching of the whole counsel of God as it's laid out in the Bible. All that preaching, whether sequential, topical, or whatever method, all of it must be Christ-centered and biblical as we present, endeavor to present the text. I want to present the text, explain the text, apply the text, as best as I can figure out what the human writer and the Holy Spirit intends for us in the text. Text, text, text. The church is extraordinarily Bible-centric. And Christians are supposed to be centered around the life of the church. And so it, uh, we, we are by necessity centered around the life of, of the teaching and the preaching. It was one of the things that was sort of symbolic in the Reformation churches that, that before that, most churches, before the Reformation, most churches had the, 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 the preachers stand, the pulpit, um, off on the side, and there was some kind of an altar in front, in the middle. It was the center of the focus. Catholic churches still look like this today. The table with the little tabernacle shrine, all of this stuff here, with the focus on the altar. The Reformation churches got rid of the altar and brought the pulpit over because the focus is on the Word, where we see the reality of what the altar used to depict in Christ. And this was, this was, a, this was a substantial change and symbolic in all of these things. Not, not, that I, not that I put the Reformers out there as absolute heroes, but, but this, is, this is sort of why they focused on this. Endeavoring to present the text, explain the text, and apply the text. And, and that is supposed to be taught by a biblically qualified pastor, elder, preacher, bishop, whatever translation you want to use that uses those words um, in places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. This is where the people of the church should recognize the elders um, and their qualifications as laid out in those, those chapters. What should we look for? How should we know? How are we going to know who these biblically qualified preachers are? It's not about seminary training. It's not about degrees. It's about the local assembly recognizing who the Lord is calling to that role and qualifying them by the the, the method of their life. Do you know this in those lists? Able to teach is only one of the qualifications. It's not even the main one. It's almost like an afterthought. The main qualifications are about the character of the elder. They all have to do with his character, his leadership, that's evident in his life. And yes, in our day, I have to say it specifically that one of those qualifications is that an elder, pastor, preacher must be a man, a biological male. Paul is specific about this in 1 Timothy 2.12, that women are not permitted to teach or to exercise authority over men in the church. Not that they can't be gifted teachers or that there's not some place for them to teach. That's not, that's not the point. But this is a distinctive that is to be seen in the church, that the preaching of the Word of God is done by qualified pastors according to God's standard. And if you don't have that, you don't have a church. The organization may own some real estate, Put up a sign that says the word church on it. Register the, with the government as a nonprofit. But if the teaching going on there is man-centered, if it's pep talks of a worldly nature, storytelling that aren't biblical, if it's laden with the social issues of our day, with political ideologies being espoused that aren't based in the word, 
any of that sort of stuff, anything other than the truth of the Bible. And if that teaching is done by a quarrelsome drunkard or a lover of money who lacks hospitality or a man who has no self-control and cannot manage his own household well or even just preaching by a woman, that that is not a church as defined by Scripture. No matter how the world looks down on that definition, this is one of the distinguishing marks of a church. Biblical preaching by qualified pastors and elders. That's the first. The second we'll talk about here is the observance of the ordinances. We're commanded in Scripture to baptize new believers and to remember the Lord in the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper or communion. Matthew 28, 19, part of the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That command is there to go baptizing them. It's exactly what the apostles did throughout the book of Acts. And it was handed down to the churches as a perpetual ordinance for the church. Baptism being the ceremonial sign, which depicts the reality of my new birth in Christ. It depicts being born again and rising to a new life. It's a ceremony performed when a believer makes their new profession of Christ as their Lord and Savior. Baptize them as you go teaching and they get saved, right? In Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, the Lord introduces to us the, the Lord's Supper, the Communion. He says uh, that Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Paul repeated this instruction in, in, in the 11th chapter of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Because they weren't keeping the ordinance correctly. They were sort of uh, feasting and overindulging and being selfish and all kinds of things that were going on in Corinth where it's really kind of a mess. Um, but it's not supposed to be like that, Paul says. It's supposed to be a remembrance of the body and blood of Christ and a proclamation of his death until he comes. How often should we do it? Often, regularly. For how long until he comes? Now this, this point may seem to us to be rather obvious, but this became an important recognition during the Reformation. I'll just point it out again. Because uh, the, the, the Catholic churches and and some of the Orthodox churches altered the meaning and purpose of baptism in the Lord's Supper. They saw them in the, the Scripture, but they changed what they're about. They, they added other sacraments that also became requirements for being a member in good standing. Now, those are neither commanded nor recognized in the Bible. As rising to the prominence of these two ordinances that are commanded and must be present in any church. But these are to be rightly and regularly administered as ceremonial remembrances not as sacraments that impart salvation or affect some other, some other aspect of, of, of spiritual well-being. They're not that. Never said to be that in the Scripture. And so, not only observing the ordinances, but, 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 but led by the elders of the church in conformance with the Scripture, they're to be done with, uh, with the, 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 the right administration. That's kind of a second distinctive. Third distinctive, of a church is the exercise of biblical church discipline. Now we know that no Christian is sinless, and all those who name the name of Christ have a responsibility, though, to confess their sins and repent of them, right? We, we may, I might, you might st- struggle, stumble. I might stumble and fall into serious sin. And when that sin is public and unrepented, the church has the obligation to address it. Right? There's two big reasons that the church must intervene. The first is for the purity of the body itself, so that everybody else who's observing the sin recognizes that, that the Scripture condemns it. The church joins with the Scripture in condemning it. It's not okay. 
Otherwise, some might observe and say, well, that guy's doing it. Nobody's saying anything. I guess it's okay. I'll try it too. Like, the church is supposed to protect the flock in that way from such, a, from such a thought. The second reason that church discipline is important is for the repentance and the restoration of the sinner. In love, the unrepentant sinner is, is, is to be taken through a process. It's laid out in Matthew 18. Right? I'm not going to go through it, but go and address the sin with them. Bring it before the elders. Bring it before the church. It gradually brings the sin into the public view. At each stage, there's a goal. Repentance and restoration. That is always the goal. But if a church member refuses to repent at the end of the process, the church will pronounce him as an unbeliever who refuses to repent. They can still repent and come back, but this is the process in a nutshell of church discipline. Recognizing this, that this should never be something that's done with pride or malice towards the sinner. Right? Rather, the entire thing's done in love. Trusting the Lord as the church is obedient to, to, to what he commanded, that it will result in the repentance and the restoration of the one who's in sin. Now, if a church refuses or neglects to, to uh, participate in such discipline, it's an evidence that the church itself is disobedient to the Lord and has no love for the sinner who needs to repent. That the church violates its, its mission and therefore can't be considered an authentic church under the headship of Christ if they're unwilling to follow Christ in a matter like that. Those are the first three points. The, the fourth, I said I'm kind of adding. I think it's interesting and, and a glaring omission, really, that in many discussions about the distinctives of actual churches, they miss spiritual fellowship. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well from Samaria in John chapter 4? That, that true believers will worship How? They'll the worship in spirit and in truth. That's, that's, that's what true worship should be. I'm afraid that there are churches, some, you know, maybe like ours at times, that have the truth. They preach expositionally correct doctrine, but they don't really have life in the spirit. I don't want that to be our church. I'm not saying that that's my diagnosis today. But I think that that's certainly a, a, a possibility for churches that are doctrinal, expositionally preaching, that they, they focus so on the truth that they miss the importance of the Spirit, that worship is supposed to be a spiritual activity. I mean, I'm not advocating for an emotional frenzy, but there has to be a vibrancy in the church with an authentic fellowship. An authentic fellowship only occurs between authentic believers, right? Authentic membership in the church must be the regenerate believers only. It's not a mixture of the lost and saved or the saved and their kids or anything like that. We may not be able to discern the difference between the lost and the saved, but it certainly must exclude those who do not profess personal faith in Jesus as both Savior and Lord. I don't mean we exclude them from coming to church. Unbelievers are always welcome, but, but they can't be considered a part of the body like a professing member of the church is. Fellowship can only be authentic when it involves authentic Christians. Now, fellowship is not just the time spent together. When we drink coffee, talk about politics, the weather, sports, or something, right? Fellowship is about the living of the Christian life together with other believers in the church. I, I, I talked about Acts 2.42 earlier, and it says that it does include breaking bread together, but it also includes praying together. 
The fellowship includes eating, breaking bread, but it also includes praying, seeking the Lord's help in our personal needs and in the needs of the church, praising Him, thanking Him, petitioning Him for our needs, asking Him to save people, seeking His guidance in all matters. We learn from each other and are drawn into the spiritual reality if our prayers are together fervent and expectant. We have to be doing this together, or I believe, arguably, we are not a church. Those who neglect to pray to the Lord with the church on behalf of the church are not really devoted to the church's mission. They're not interested in the church's spiritual needs and development. But worse than believers who neglect those meetings is a church that neglects prayer altogether. I mean, a church must provide the opportunity for encouraging the spiritual fellowship of prayer. That, that, that must happen. You must have this. A church that neglects that is arguably not a church. Christians who neglect that are questionable about their devotion to the Lord in the context of what we see in the the overwhelming truth of the New Testament that our lives are supposed to be focused and prioritized around the life of the church. Now, it's not just praying. In addition to devoted praying together, a church's fellowship should be seen in its worship, singing together with the intention of raising our voices to the Lord together interacting with the preaching and the teaching of the Bible, sharing with one another the things that we learn, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these should be increasingly obvious among us as we worship together and are led by the Spirit who will, in us, produce those fruits individually and jointly, congregationally in our assembly. I mean, further, our fellowship should also include our work in the gospel together, evangelism, witnessing, missions, works of charity. I mean, most, most of us can't directly be involved in every aspect all the time, but our prayers and our offerings are always beneficial to the mission of the church, to take the gospel out into the world and to adorn that gospel with good works. I mean, as we participate in these works, they will unquestionably deepen our love for one another and thereby our fellowship with the Lord too. All of that should be happening in a local church. No other organization on the planet has these distinctives. None. And it's these distinctives that actually teach us what the blessings are to the believers who will not neglect meeting together in the church. The preaching, the teaching, the experience of baptism in the Lord's Supper, these all deepen our knowledge of Christ and what He's done for us. They remind us about who Jesus is and, and what He accomplished on our behalf. When the writer of Hebrews tells us to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, remember we come to Him through His Word. I said it last week, the living way to God is paved with His living Word as it draws us into those heavenly realms where Jesus sits at the right hand of God into His presence. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching and empowered it by His Spirit so that the power of salvation is in the gospel message. When you realize those kinds of things in the Bible, you cannot overestimate the importance of these unique marks of the church in blessing us as believers to know Jesus and what He's done for us better. Now, there's also a blessing for the believer, not only from the teaching, but the caring oversight that called and gifted pastors can bring in times of difficulty and suffering. The word and the men tasked to preach it can be used by the Lord to provide personal help and counsel. 
I mean, that, that extends through every type of counsel, all the way out to church discipline for believers who want to stay on the straight and narrow path to the Lord. I mean, church discipline itself is difficult. It's a trying process. It's, it's heart-wrenching. But with the goal always directed toward restoration of sinners, you cannot deny that it's a blessing to the wayward who proves the authenticity of their faith through the repentance that's sought through church discipline. These are the blessings of the Christian life worked through the unique characteristics of the church. See that? Lastly, lest we think that the church is all about the pastor and his teaching, recognize that the greatest and I think the most varied blessings are to be found in the fellowship among one another. The pastor is the best one guy with a limited set of, 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 of gifts, sometimes seemingly almost no gifts. Case in point. But in times of difficulty and suffering, the blessing of being amongst fellow believers is incalculable. I mean, each of us has been given a particular spiritual gift or gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that they are given as manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good, to help one another out. When the body is working together in holy fellowship, each member benefits. And each of us needs encouragement, don't we, to persevere, to grow in the Lord. And each of us has a particular set of gifts which are given to us to care for one another. My encouragement will come from you unless you're not here. In which case I may not get it. There's a, there, 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 there's a reason to be dedicated and prioritize the assembling together. There can be no doubt, as I said, that pastors don't possess all those gifts, but in a, in a, in a, in a rightly ordered church, we would expect to see all of those gifts active in the people who are there. This, these are the unique privileges and blessings. They're, they're enjoyed by those who do not neglect the meeting together somewhere in the habit of doing. As we kind of come to the conclusion, I want to I point out one other characteristic of the church, something else that's unique about the church. It's not something intrinsic in the church. Not so much a characteristic of the church, but a reality about how the Lord views the church. How does the Lord view the church? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yes, the context there is about instructions to husbands and wives. But think about what, what Paul is pointing to as the, the greater truth that he's using to demonstrate to husbands that they ought to love their wives. What's the greater truth? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's, what's the Lord's perspective? What's the Lord's heart for the church? It's optional. It's passe, old-fashioned. Only the weak need such a thing. It's the crutch of the ignorant. Whatever. Is that the Lord's perspective? The church becomes irrelevant because all you need is me. Is that, is that, is that the Lord's perspective? No, of course not, right? The Lord loves the church so much so that he gave himself up for her. I mean, that's true of both the invisible universal church and true of every visible local church who exhibits the marks of actually being his church. 
Jesus doesn't just have an emotional attachment to the church and churches. He demonstrated his love in this most tangible and real way by giving up his life for her. Consider briefly, very briefly, the love that Christ has for the church. His love is from all eternity, right? He has from before the foundation of the world planned to come and redeem his people from their sins. He loves the church intentionally. It was his mission to give his life as a ransom for his beloved, sacrificing himself to save his bride. He loves the church ceaselessly and endlessly. In John 13, 1, he says that he was about to leave the world and he loved his own to the end. Now his life ended, but did his love? Oh no. No, no, his love continues on. And we know it because why? He's promised to come back and get the one that he loves. To rescue us out of this mess. He's going to come back for his church. And who's the bride in all eternity? The church. The church is the bride. Said to be the beloved of Christ. Love is the primary description of what Jesus thinks, feels, and does for his church. Said it last week, James calls it the the royal law. It is the thing that Jesus conforms himself to. Love, it's the highest, and his most steadfast delight is, is giving himself for his beloved bride. Now ask me, let me ask you this, do you want to have a part of that? I mean, do you, do you want to maximize your opportunities to know and experience the love of Christ, which surpasses all understanding? Paul wrote about such a thing in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 2, right? I want you to know the depth and the breadth and the height uh, of the love of Christ that he has for you. To know all of this love that goes beyond understanding. And as he, he concludes his little prayer there, in, in Ephesians 2.20, he writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear it? Did you catch it? Where is the glory of Christ working in us going to be made manifest? Throughout all generations, forever and ever, Where will we experience this glory of Christ's love and power at work? He says it is in the church. Paul says it's in the church. I mean, is it any wonder then that we read in Hebrews 10.25 that we must not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, the day is drawing near. So let me encourage you. Jesus gave himself for his bride, the church. He loves the church. He will reveal his glory and power in the church. And if you make yourself a part of it and do not neglect the meeting together, as some in our day, very many, are in the habit of doing, then he will give you all the benefits of knowledge, strength, growth, peace, faith, So much more I could go on and on with, right? If you devote yourself to his church, the one he loves, and not neglect meeting together with the church, he will draw near to you as you draw near to him. He will be in your life. He he will love and bless you as you are a part of his church. Don't neglect the meeting together. So very many are in the habit of doing. Amen. Lord, I thank you for giving us these simple instructions. I, I mean, this is, this is a simple instruction. It's not 
so complicated to understand about what it is that we can do in our lives to be near to you, to be blessed by you, to grow in grace and knowledge, to be strengthened, to have power in our lives. Lord, it's, it, is, it is just really that simple. If we love the church the way that you love the church, even with all of its faults, all of the sinners that gather there with the church, I mean, this, sinner, this church is made up of nothing but sinners, but redeemed sinners who want to serve you together, who want to hear the teaching and preaching of your word, celebrate baptism when we can and the Lord's Supper, submit ourselves to church discipline, gather for regular spiritual fellowship and prayer and working together for the common goal of the gospel. Lord, I, I just thank you that, that that's true here. And if, if we love you and love your church, we'll be a part of it and not neglect the meeting together. So many are in the habit of doing. Lord, I pray that you would increase that devotion in us, that it might be said of us, similar to what was said in Acts 2, of those in that, in that first generation, that we, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship even the breaking of the bread and the, and the prayers together. Lord, I thank you for, for just the clearest of, of all things, something that even the world knows Christians are supposed to do. Lord, help us to do the things that you expect of us because we love you and recognize the good that we get from them. I thank you for the time together around your word here, for sustaining my voice and keeping us going here this morning. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.